welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As a brief reminder of the last uh, two sermons, uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his younger co-worker in the faith, Timothy. Timothy had previously been sent to Ephesus in order to correct certain errors and to establish good practices in the church. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, at the very center of the letter, Paul gives a general purpose for writing this letter to Timothy. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's Paul's focus in this letter. There will be a lot of other things that are brought up, especially a warning about false teachers. But this is the culminating point of this letter is how to live as the church of the living God, holding high the truth of God's word. Last time we studied chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, where we were encouraged by Paul's personal testimony of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In that passage, the gospel was made incredibly simple and clear. Jesus, who is the promised Christ, came into the world and he came to save sinners. It is with this in mind that we jump into verses 18 through 20, where Paul will entrust this gospel message to Timothy, calling him to be faithful, though others prove to be faithless. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that we have the privilege to join in fellow worship and praise of you this morning. I pray that your words would be clear to us, that you would remove any distractions in our minds and hearts, and instead that we would come ready to hear and ready to receive your word. I pray, Father, that everything that is done here and said this morning would be honoring and glorifying to you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to search our own hearts to ensure that we are faithful to you, that we are faithfully serving you, and that we would not be found faithless. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 together. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In verse 18, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. What is he referring to? The phrase, this charge, could also be translated, 
this command or this instruction and points back to the message of the gospel that he has just been proclaiming throughout chapter 1. This charge, this commission of the gospel um, that was entrusted to Paul by the Lord himself is now being entrusted to Timothy. Similar language is used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul again writes to Timothy only a few years later. He says there, what you, have, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The charge Paul is speaking about is the truth. The truth of the good news that God the Father has revealed himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul is using military language, the military language of charge or command to to give an accurate picture of what has been entrusted to Timothy. The gospel is pictured as orders handed down from the highest authority. The truth of the gospel states clearly the will of God, our commander, the commander-in-chief. And in the scriptures, we clearly see the instructions of our commander. These instructions or commands had been entrusted to Paul by the Lord, and now Paul is entrusting these unaltered instructions to his lieutenant, Timothy. I know that many of you have, have served in the military. And most all, if not, if not, most of you, if not all, have seen movies or read enough books to have a good idea of what it means to serve under the command of another. In the best human militaries, order and discipline, faithfulness and integrity are key qualities leading to their success. In my mind, it's almost unimaginable for a lieutenant or a secondary leader to receive orders or instructions from his commander, but then to add to his commander's words, or to take away words that he didn't really like, or simply to ignore the order entirely. But recently, I've seen a couple movies where the disobeying of orders was glorified and actually praised. The story typically typically goes like this. A lieutenant receives orders that he doesn't really agree with. Usually it is because the lieutenant feels he knows more or he cares more than the distant commander. So what does the lieutenant do? He goes with his gut feeling and accomplishes what he thinks was the most important goal or outcome. He often does this with a self-righteous statement of, if the commander doesn't like it, then I'll simply have to take the consequences. But in reality, this rarely, if ever, works out for the good of the unit or of the mission. In fact, successful military severely discipline even the smallest offenses of insubordination willfully disobeying a superior. Because insubordination is rarely driven by the moral high ground. In reality, most incidents occur because of fear, selfishness, greed, laziness, or pride. And if a unit gives way to these expressions of individualism, then they become nothing more than a liability on the battlefield. For example, if a soldier is allowed to forsake his friends and disobey his commander by hiding in his barracks during training, 
simply because there's snow on the ground and it's cold and wet outside, then there's no way that same soldier will ever charge up a hill into machine gun fire out of loyalty to his commander and devotion to his friends. Paul is drawing on on this imagery of a faithful soldier in order to awaken in Timothy's heart and mind the gravity of what he is being entrusted with. The orders given by the commander of the heavenly armies. Will Timothy serve faithfully? Looking back at verse 18, Paul speaks words of encouragement to Timothy by reminding him of the words of prophecy that have been spoken about Timothy. Paul says in verse 18, This charge, this this truth from God, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We're not given any background information about the specific content of these prophecies. But we can reasonably assume that the prophecies speak of Timothy as someone God was going to use for his service. Paul points to these prophecies as a promise from God. Something tangible that Timothy could hold on to. As Timothy looked ahead at the trials that life may bring and the trials that he was facing right then, he was encouraged to look back to the promises that God had made to him and about him. Paul says that these prophecies or promises of the future are to drive Timothy onward. He says that by them or inspired by these promises of the future you may, you can and you must wage the good Warfare. Now you may be thinking to yourself, but I don't have a prophetic word spoken over my life. What am I supposed to do? But on the other, uh, first of all, be encouraged. You can be encouraged that you are not alone. You are in good company. God has not delivered a future prophecy over me specifically either. But on the other hand, God has spoken prophecy or promises for right now and for the future over each and every one of us sitting here today. For the Christian, those who have repented of their sins and expressed faith in Christ alone to save them, there are a multitude of promises made about you. Just a couple, for example, are these. Psalm 37 says, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. In John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those are just a few promises that we can look to and cling to for this life now and for the life to come. But for the unbeliever, those who ignore God or attempt to approach God by any other way, there are also Promises about this life and the future. John th- in John 3, we read, He who believes in Jesus is not judged, 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John 8, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am the Christ, you will die in your sins. And then in Revelation 21, we read, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Apart from faith in the sacrificial blood of Jesus, His work on our behalf, there is no forgiveness of sins. Only vain pursuits in this life and due payment in the next. At the end of verse 18, Paul encourages Timothy and he encourages us to look to the promise promises of God to give us strength and endurance to be faithful and to wage the good warfare. Again, we see military language here. This phrase could be translated a couple different ways. For example, fight the good fight, war the good warfare, serve as a soldier in the good fight, or fight the noble war. All of these translations point to to Timothy's, Timothy's duty, and in fact, every believer's duty to engage in spiritual warfare. We do ourselves and those around us a disservice if we only speak of the Christian life as a list of do's and don'ts. Or if we act as if this life in the physical world around us is all there is. In reality, there is a war raging all around us and inside of us every day. On one side are the spiritual forces of darkness. And on the other side is God and all who belong to Him. And in the middle of these two vast armies in the valley, the battle of history rages over the salvation and purity of God's people. Yes, God is sovereign. No one and no thing is outside His control. And yes, Jesus has already delivered the death blow to death, sin, and the devil. But according to the will of God, these defeated forces of darkness will be allowed to thrash about and wound the children of God until the day when Jesus, the victorious King, will return and put an end to all rebellion. This is the spiritual warfare that Paul is calling Timothy to fight faithfully. To wage the good warfare against unbelief, doubt, fear, lust, and pride. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As you read through this list of defenses against the forces of darkness, it becomes clear that the focus is spiritual warfare, not physical protection from bodily harm. Putting on the whole armor of God defends your heart from corrupting influences outside of you, such as unbelievers, persecution, the garbage on the internet and the television, and on occasion, direct assault from demonic forces. But on the other hand, putting on the whole armor of God defends you from your greatest enemy, your own sinful flesh, my own sinful flesh that still clings to every believer here on earth, the attack from within. Sometimes the flesh is awakened by a combination with outside forces. But just as often our flesh rears its ugly head unbidden, seeking an opportunity to weaken and wound the ill-prepared soldier like a disease or virus from within. Time and again, the scriptures call the soldier of God to be on the alert, to awake from sleep, to be vigilant, to persevere, not to grow weary in well-doing. When you are alone and bored, watch out. The well-trained soldier can feel the enemy watching him. The The woods suddenly become too quiet. The hair on his neck stands up and and his senses become alert to the impending attack. When you are angry and hurt, place a guard over your mouth. Know your enemy and understand the schemes of the devil because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. When you are tired or sick, Fasten tightly the helmet of your salvation and grasp firmly the sword of God's word and call for prayer, for the prayer and the help of your companions because your enemy without and the flesh within will seek to wound you when you are at your weakest. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 19, Paul summarizes the task of a faithful soldier another way. He says that waging the good warfare requires that the soldier be found holding faith and a good conscience. In this context, it's probably best to understand this description of a loyal soldier this way. Faith describes a head knowledge and persuasion of the truth that has sunk down deep impacted our hearts. It is to hold to the sound teaching as delivered without doubt or wavering. A good conscience describes living according to and in line with the truth. 
It is to be above reproach in your pursuit of following Christ. A good conscience knows what is right and is sensitive to the right, swiftly repenting of evil and running after what is good. A faithful soldier clings to the truth and lives according to the truth. This description of a faithful soldier brings Paul to his primary concern and emphasis. Faithless or false teachers. He continues in verse 19 by saying this. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In the Greek, it is clear that Paul is saying these men have rejected specifically a good conscience. Paul is giving special emphasis here to the failure of these people to guard and foster a good conscience. They failed to swiftly repent of evil and run after what is good. If you ignore the firm and clear call of your conscience to flee from evil and pursue what is good, then the next time the call will be slightly more distant. And less urgent. If left unchecked, the call of the conscience can become so muted that it's barely heard. And if you, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul calls this condition having a seared conscience, literally a conscience that is cauterized. The heart that was once so tender to the prick of the conscience is now so burned by the red-hot iron of sin that all that's left is scar tissue without the least sensitivity to conscience. Certain persons in the church had lived in sin for so long that they had seared their consciences, causing them to head off course and shipwreck their faith. Paul now alludes to the image of ships and sailing. These persons who had rejected a good conscience were like sailors who chuck overboard the ballast of the ship, the heavy items in the hull or the bottom of the ship that give it stability in the water. Without the stabilizing effect of a good conscience, these persons had been tossed about by the wind and the waves into dangerous waters, which were filled with jagged rocks of error. And it is on these rocks that many had become shipwrecked, beginning to sink under the waves of unbelief, pride, and vanity. In Ephesians 4:14, Paul says that those who do not hold to the faith and a good conscience are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what was Timothy supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when those who claim to be Christians show signs of a seared conscience and begin to speak words contrary to the truth of God's Word? People who maybe sat next to us in Bible study or helped us in creche or even stood before the congregation and preached. What is the Christian response to unrepentant sin and error in the church? Paul here gives 
the example of two unrepentant men who claimed to be Christians and were at one point part of the church. Paul says in verse 20, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. At first glance, this verse sounds like an apostolic curse. Serious. Combined with verse 19, having made shipwreck of their faith, they are now handed over to Satan. Surely these guys are doomed and lost forever without Christ. But if we slow down and look closely at Paul's words, and consider his words in the context of the rest of the New Testament, we end up coming to a different conclusion. Paul says these men seared their consciences, headed off into dangerous waters of false teaching, resulting in their faith being shipwrecked upon upon theological error, resulting in them teaching blasphemous things about God, and sinking even deeper into unbelief. But just because Paul uses the term shipwreck doesn't mean we should assume that he is saying they are without hope of rescue. After all, Paul himself survived three literal shipwrecks at sea. And in addition, Paul says something very interesting in verse 20. He says that these men were handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's hope is that these men will turn from blaspheming. Change, yes, even repent. Paul writes something very similar in 1 Corinthians 5 as he rebukes the Corinthian church for their pride and sinfulness. He says to them, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn over this? Let him... Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to li- deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There is a purpose and a hope for putting unrepentant people out of the church. Outside the protective influence of God's family gathered. The purpose and the hope is that as they face the trials of life and the scorn of the devil on their own, they will repent of their sins and confess the truth again. This is a God-given function of the church to protect the individual, to protect the whole church, to guard our testimony before the world, and to pursue restoration with an unrepentant brother or sister. Church discipline, as it has been titled, is not something done flippantly. And it is most certainly not enjoyable. Many prayers and tears are spilled throughout the process. But so that the rest of the body does not die, we must follow the very clear biblical process of separating ourselves from the disease of unrepentant sin. 
In Matthew 18, Jesus first introduces this practice to his disciples. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's the first step. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's done. It's done. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Bring a mediator along with someone who can say, yes, This is true. This is God's word. This is a biblical response. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, this combined body of believers that are saying, Brother, repent. He refuses to listen even to them. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He has responded in unbelief. Do not continue to act as if he is is a believer, as if he's one of you. He is acting completely contrary to that. And for the sake of your brother, the purity of God's church, For the purity of our testimony to the lost world, make it very clear that he is not one of us. Though it may not not seem like it at first, church discipline, going to extreme lengths to protect the purity of God's visible family, is a life-sustaining function of the church given by God for our health and for our unity and testimony.